Money is the root of all evil. That is one kind of error. What kind of error? Well, yeah, we could call it misquoting. What we defined it as misreading. Lazy misreading. Oh, look at that. Ah, okay. <clears throat> We're now making it so that we can have parts of the slide appear as we go through. <clears throat> Lazy misreading, simply not taking the time to read through or to carefully read through a passage of scripture. Now, not all misreading or misquoting is due to laziness. Sometimes you are being diligent to read the scriptures, but you just haven't gotten to that section yet. <clears throat> but not committing to read the Bible or being lazy when you read through it, not really paying attention to what you read, will lead to this error. Misreading, lazy misreading. What was another one? Well, all of these are types of misinterpretation, but we want to be more specific. When the Jehovah Witnesses change the meaning of John 1.1, 1, 1, what kind of error is that? So, well, yes, definitely heresy, and de denying the, the deity of our Lord Jesus. We called it distorting desires. You're making the Bible say what you want it to say, for the sake of some cherished idol or belief system. You want to validate yourself when you come to the scriptures so you read meaning into the text. We actually talked about a third, which is kind of a type of a distorting a desire, something that we use, some sort of outside source that we use and distort the scriptures because we want to use that outside source as a factor of interpretation. What was the third pitfall that does that? It is a form of eisegesis when you read meaning into the text rather than exegesis, read the meaning out of the text. Very good. We talked about the danger of using man's ideas and experiences as factors in, in, in interpreting the Bible. Man, in his science and in uh, other areas, does have some useful things to offer, but not when it comes to interpreting the Bible. If we try and interpret according to man's wisdom or even to our own experiences, we are going to end up misinterpreting the Bible. So we looked at these three last week. They are very dangerous, but unfortunately very common. So if you weren't here last week, I highly recommend going back to the church website, listen to last week's lesson as we break down those types. Now, as I alluded to already, you may notice that some of these error types um, actually occur together. So someone might be misreading the scripture because, or they might be um, not paying attention to the scriptures, not reading through it carefully because they want to distort it. They have a desire that they want to see validated, so they don't pay too close attention because if they did, then they might find something that contradicts what they want to believe. Or as we noted, distorting the scripture can happen because you're using man's ideas and experiences. So don't feel like it's only one or the other. They often do appear together. We want to guard ourselves from these errors, not just these three, but also the two that we haven't talked about. And today, I actually only want to look at the next one. The next pitfall that we're going to discuss is relativism. Now, as I prepared for today, it occurred to me that relativism, when uh, talking about biblical interpretation, can take many forms. I'm going to talk about three of those today. I want to unmask relativism's various disguises um, for us so that we're not deceived when we interpret the Bible. We're going to 
look at what are these three different kinds of relativism. We're going to look at examples of each and then discuss how do we guard ourselves from slipping into relativism when we interpret the Bible. The fifth pitfall, pride, we'll talk about next week. But let's pray, ask God's blessing now as we begin this investigation. <clears throat> Holy God, we confess, Lord, that we need you. Lord, that's part of how we, as part of how you design prayer, Lord. It's just the continual uh, realization and acknowledgement to you that we need you. We need you for everything that we do, every righteous work, every righteous word. Lord, for teaching, for serving, for understanding your word, we need you, God. So, Spirit, in Jesus Christ, Lord, please be with us now. Help us to understand. Make these words clear to us. Make the words clear as I explain them. And, Lord, I pray that uh, if there are questions or things we don't understand, that um, you would help us to, to be able to figure it out. We might be able to talk through it, or we might be able to get good counsel from somebody who is wise. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. When it comes to some of these pitfalls of interpretation, you can actually compare it to movements of thought in history, or especially our recent history. Think about the 20th century. Historians and those who keep track of these things typify the 20th century and some, some years before it as a modernist period, a period of modernism in our thinking. What is that, if you know? What does it mean to be thinking in a modernist system? Yes, Dwayne. That's exactly right. We're talking about the modernist type of thinking is that man's wisdom can figure things out in science, especially in the 20th century, but also in philosophy and the other, um, other academic disciplines. Man can figure out truth without revelation from an outside source. He just needs his mind. This is not unlike this last pitfall that we discussed. Modernism finds its way into biblical interpretation when we use man's ideas and experiences. We say, hey, my mind can understand truth apart from God, or I can assist God in understanding the truth. That's modernism coming into the Bible. But, as historians have noted, modernism has failed in many ways in the last century because it hasn't brought about what it suggested it would. That man can figure things out, he can solve the world's problems, he can end war, he can end poverty, he can end sickness, you can end crimes just by educating people, but it hasn't happened, or hasn't happened in a large part. So we, many have described us as entering a new period of thought, a postmodern period of thought, postmodernism. What is postmodernism? We sometimes say, oh, that's such a postmodern statement, or that's such a postmodern way of thinking. What, Steve? There really is no That's right. So modernism failed. We can't figure it out, or we weren't able to find the truths that would help us solve all the ills. So maybe there is no truth. Or if there is a truth, we can't figure it out. Nobody can understand it. Or maybe everyone has his own truth. You know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. <clears throat> Even this finds its way into biblical interpretation. And that's really what we're talking about when we say 
relativism. So relativism is the fourth pitfall that we want to be aware of, and it's very closely related to this movement of thought that we're still in, to a large degree, of postmodernism. So what does relativism look like with the Bible? Well, in this pitfall, um, three ways it can show up that, that I could think of. It manifests itself in the belief that the meaning of the Bible can change, that multiple interpretations of the Bible or of a Bible passage are valid at the same time, or that it's impossible to be sure of the Bible's true meaning. So we can see relativism in any of those ways. The belief that the Bible's meaning can change, that multiple interpretations are true at the same time, or that there's no way to know what the Bible actually means. And <clears throat> demonstrating these things to you, let me actually deal with the last thought first. That the idea that the Bible's truth and truth ultimately is not absolute or knowable. A prime example of this kind of relativism actually appears in the Bible. You may recall Pontius Pilate and his investigation of Jesus. In John 17, 37, I won't make you turn there, I'll just quote it. This is, a, this is what it says. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Speaking to Jesus. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now when Pilate asks the question, what is truth, he is not being sincere. This is rhetorical. His conversation with Jesus actually stops right after he asks that question. What was Pilate really saying by asking, what is truth? Danielle. Yeah, so he's, yeah, you're right, Danielle. So by asking what is truth, he's pointing out that, oh, how can you say you actually know something that is true? How can you say that you, you can find truth or that you are truth or that you speak truth? After all, we don't even know what truth is. That's the sign of really advanced thinking in Pilate's mind. Well, when he asks the question, what is truth, we actually can give an answer, and we can give the answer. What is the answer? What is truth? What can we go to and be absolutely certain that it's true? The scriptures, right? God is true. His word is true. And that is not up for debate. The Bible proclaims itself to be completely trustworthy. In every word and letter, God has opened our eyes to this. We couldn't even figure it out according to our own wisdom. But we see now and understand, because he's opened our eyes, that the Bible is God-breathed. It's divinely inspired. Every word of it is true. It demonstrates itself to be true in our lives. The Holy Spirit confirms it. It is the seal of our inheritance. Not only that the Bible is true, but also that if it's true, then we are going to be with God. The Holy Spirit, by displaying itself in us, shows that we are of the truth, we are going to be with the God of truth. <clears throat> there is absolute surety with the Bible. As we've discussed before, it's inerrant, it's clear, it's divine, and it's sufficient. It's all you need. Unfortunately, however, some Christians have lost sight of this and embrace a relativistic attitude with the Bible or with certain parts of it. For example, <clears throat> 
which would be more accurate to say? The Bible contains God's truth or is God's truth? Is God's truth. But many churches today, in their statements of faith or in their doctrines, will say that the Bible contains God's word rather than is. This is relativism. They don't want to say that it is God's truth. That would be too absolute. They want to give themselves a little bit of wiggle room, so they weakly say it only contains the truth. It's in there somewhere. This stance, while fitting very well with our current age, is ultimately self-defeating. Why? Eric. Exactly. You're totally right, Eric. Who's to say which parts of the Bible are actually true? How do you know which parts are true? You either, in trying to figure out how to deal with that question, you're either going to end up cutting up the Word of God and say, nope, this part can't be true. That part is. Or you're just going to stop listening because you're going to see the logical conclusion you don't really know what's from God, so why bother trying to figure it out why give up things that maybe you don't have to? John MacArthur, in an article entitled Blackballing Scripture, Scholarship Takes a Beating, and that's B-E-A-D, tells of a group of scholars <clears throat> who assembled in a conference to tackle this question. How do we know which parts of the Bible are actually true? Or more specifically, how do we know which parts of the New Testament were actually spoken by Jesus? They called this conference the Jesus Seminar. And they weren't looking to celebrate or learn from Jesus, but trying to figure out which words did he actually say and which words were added by other people. <clears throat> now, how did they come to determine this? Let me quote from MacArthur in his article. Here's what he says. They made their decisions by majority vote. The scholars used a curious polling procedure. Each participant dropped a red bead into a ballot box for sayings he or she figured were probably authentic. Pink beads meant possibly authentic. Gray beads were used for saying, sayings thought to have been altered by the disciples or early Christians. And black beads were the strongest no vote, used for passages deemed entirely fabricated or spoken by someone other than Jesus. The results were astonishing. The group decreed that only 31 of, a, of the more than 700 sayings attributed to Jesus in the Gospels are unquestionably authentic and 16 of those were duplicates from other passages. More than half the sayings considered received the black bead. All totaled, the panel utterly rejected 80% of the words of scripture attributed to Jesus. Among the ousted passages are Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when, a man, when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Mark 10, 32-34, in which Jesus foretold his crucifixion, all the apocalyptic sections, and everything in John, except John 4.44, which got a pink, and ironically says, a prophet has no honor in his own country. <clears throat> this is, of course, very tragic, and you might say extreme, and it is. Hopefully none of us will ever get to this point ourselves, but even if we're not cutting up the Bible this, this way, it does not mean we are safe from the sentiment that drove these scholars. Sometimes even we can be tempted to say that the true meaning of the Bible, or parts of the Bible, have been corrupted 
or are impossible to understand. You just cannot know the true meaning. For example, I listed these up there. This happens with the creation account. <clears throat> we look at Genesis, we consider the various interpretations of the beginning chapters and say, who can really know? I mean, maybe it is just poetry. Not totally and literally true, as some argue. Or maybe it's a straightforward historical account, and you can trust it. Or maybe all of it's symbolic. It's just showing the character of God and has nothing to do with actual history. There are claims from, or there are people make these different claims. Who can say? If we come to that conclusion, then that is relativism. And it's a dangerous undermining of the Bible's authority and integrity. We must be aware of that. Or in another example, on the other end of the Bible, this happens with Revelation, right? Take the book of Revelation and the, the hodgepodge of interpretive views on it, and we say the same thing. How can anyone really know what this means? And we justify this thinking to ourselves, thinking, well, God never intended for it to be clear. God never intended for the descriptions of the last days to be totally understandable. The general idea was what's important. The idea that God's going to achieve final victory against evil and sin, or that Jesus will come back. This, too, is relativism finding its way in our thinking. It's an assault on the perspicuity, and that's the, that's the term that just means the understandableness, the clarity of the Bible. Just like the so-called scholars of the Jesus Seminar, we inaugurate ourselves as judges of the Bible. We will decide what is understandable and what is not. We will decide what is worth studying and what is not, rather than believe the Bible's own claims. If we take this back to Genesis and Revelation, and we embrace this relativistic perspective, that means we don't believe God or Moses' mouthpiece when Moses says in Genesis 2-4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Instead, we explain away the statement by saying it wasn't a fully true account. It was written to simple people in a simple time. So Moses, or God, dumbed it down for them. Suddenly, we can't trust the words God chooses to use. Suddenly, we have to read between the lines according to some basis not found in the Bible if we're going to understand what's written. Suddenly, we can't approach the Bible like any other piece of written communication. There's like a, a secret to it. We can't even study the Bible at all because everything we observe in relation to recapturing the original audience's understanding suddenly doesn't matter if we can't trust the words that are used. So this brings our understanding of Genesis into a crisis when we use relativism and does so similarly with Revelation. If we embrace a relativistic perspective on Revelation and its meaning, that means we don't believe the claims of God and the Apostle John, right even at the beginning of Revelation. Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3. Let me read this to you. Revelation 1, 1 to 3 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. 
Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. By being relativistic, we don't believe that there is a blessing in studying or hearing revelation, or at least not much. We don't believe that the things will soon take place. We don't believe that God's communication was clear, but that instead God purposefully clouded, he obfuscated his prophecy about future events, even though doing so would totally defeat the purpose of his writing it to the seven churches in the first place. Ultimately, if we're relativistic in this way with any part of the Bible, it means we also don't believe what the psalmist wrote and what God wrote through the psalmist in Psalm 19, 7 and 9. You've heard these verses before. Psalm 19, 7 and 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is um, pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. I think I forgot one line. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. <clears throat> when we're relativistic, we actually think that parts of the Bible will delude and frustrate the simple. Or that to have truly enlightened eyes, you've got to bring your own wisdom into the Bible's interpretation. As I think Danielle alluded to earlier, we actually think that relativism is a sign of wisdom. That if you want to be really intelligent, really scholarly, then you should question whether you can believe all the words of Scripture. My dear brothers and sisters, let's not be deceived by this. Relativism is not wisdom. The world applauds it as wisdom, and you will get a pat on the back from the so-called intellectuals in the world if you embrace relativism with the Scriptures, but it's not wisdom. In fact, as many truly wise people have pointed out, postmodernism and relativism are essentially just intellectual laziness. It's just intellectual laziness. Rather than actually studying the biblical account according to the method that we've discussed, according to the method that you would use with any piece of literature, any written communication that you actually want to get to know, these persons excuse themselves from study by saying, well, who can really know? The Bible says that you can know. And that you must know, because you will be held accountable for the things that are written in it, in all its parts. Now, before I go on, let me pause a little bit and give a couple of qualifications to what I'm saying. Because you might be getting some questions in your mind, be like, wait a second, and I want to anticipate those, hopefully. First, I'm not saying that there aren't a few portions in the Bible which are very hard to understand. I confess that there are tiny parts of the Old Testament and New Testament where we see a phrase that can be translated multiple ways, and it's unclear which one was meant. Or the author uses an idiom which we don't actually know what that idiom means. If you have a study Bible, you may have seen a little note that tells you about this in, in, a, in a small section or two where it says, and there's a little mark, and at the bottom it might say, the original meaning of this phrase is unclear. But don't be alarmed. Because these tiny sections represent only, uh, according, to what, um, according to what MacArthur says in his study Bible, these represent less than 0.01% of the Bible. And they do not substantially affect any principle or doctrine expressed in the other parts of Scripture. 
So before you say, wait a second, how can you say the Bible's clear? Look, here's a spot where it says it's unclear. Oh, believe. That's one tiny little minuscule section, and it doesn't affect any doctrine. So we can be confident in the Bible's clarity, and we can say, yes, it is without error. So don't misunderstand me there. Secondly, I'm not saying that all parts are equally easy to understand. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, we get a statement even about this in the Bible. Open your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> not all parts of the Bible are as easy to understand as other parts. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, looking, and then starting at verse 14. Here's what Peter writes, starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things that he's been talking about, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So you see, there's even a confession from Peter that some parts of scripture are hard to understand. But, and this is very important, all of it is understandable and profitable and is necessary for our equipping and joy. I like actually something that Paul says to Timothy along these lines in one of his letters. Turn over to 2 Timothy. <clears throat> An example of something that may fall under the category of hard to understand, but nonetheless, Paul says you'll get it. 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 7. Second Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. <clears throat> that last verse has always stuck out to me, because Paul seems to acknowledge that Timothy might not get it right away, might not understand what he means right away. But what does Paul tell Timothy to do? Yeah, he says, consider it. Think about it. Think through this. And he has, a, um, he has an encouragement to do so. He says, if you think through it, you'll be able to figure it out, and why? The Lord will give him understanding, right? Take the time to think through this, meditate on this, and the Spirit's going to help you understand. And this is true for us too, right? Even the most difficult sections of Scripture are written as they are, not to make things more unclear, but to communicate something very rich. Symbolism 
and complex arguments, whatever it is, were written to reveal, not conceal. They just need a little bit more time. You need to do the same thing as Timothy. Consider what was said, and the Spirit will give you understanding. God is an expert communicator, and he has designed the thoughtful study of his word and the aid of the Holy Spirit to communicate himself to us. Very simple, foolish people who are made wise by the word. Did you have something you want to say, Dwayne? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great insight, Dwayne. Thanks for sharing that. Verse 15, 2 Timothy, does a great job of um, reiterating that. Got to be diligent. It's going to take some work to understand the word, but you can do it. You can accurately handle the word of truth, and you don't just have to be a pastor or a leader like Timothy. That's for all of us. We're all to desire the pure milk of the word. So, uh, let's see, where was I in my notes? So we can and should understand even the most difficult parts of the Bible. It does take time, it does take steady, and it takes thinking. And of course, it takes the Holy Spirit. But there is a reward at the end of it. And the reward is God himself. Understanding more about God. One last clarification here. When it comes to prophecies of the future, I'm not saying, when talking about the dangers of relativism, that we will know all of the details of end time events, even with God's clear word in Revelation and in other parts of the scripture. Am I going back on what I said? No, of course not. Let me clarify by example. Turn to Revelation 7. Let's look at one of the prophesied events of Revelation 7 and see what we can understand. Look at Revelation 7 verses 10. I think I may have written down the wrong chapter. Hold on, let me just find it. (laughs) Revelation 8, I'm sorry. Revelation 8, verses 10 and 11. Here's what Revelation 8, verse 10 says. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Here's an interpretive question. Of course, there's a a context here, and there's the context of the rest of the book, which we want to consider and we want to know. But here's a question. What is the star that is called wormwood, which falls from the heavens in these verses? What exactly is it? If you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, then don't worry, because I don't know either. The word for star here actually refers to more than a star. It can be any celestial body or celestial object. So what is it? Is it a meteor? 
Is it a comet? Is it an asteroid? Is it a nuclear missile? Is it an angel? I don't know. And we don't get more evidence in the passage to help determine this. However, I do know a great deal about this future event from what's written here. Something, like a star, is going to fall from the sky. And what's the effect? How much the water? One third, and one of what kind of water? Fresh water. One third of the, the rivers and streams, the fresh water will be made bitter. And then what's the result of that? Many people die. That's clear, right? I don't need to turn to some code book to figure that out. And we may not know the exact timing of this, but we do know something about the timing. What do we know? Do we know anything about when this is going to take place? Yeah, Danielle. Do we have any, that's a good observation, Danielle, when the third angel sounds, but do we have any help as to when that will happen? After the second angel, right? And that will happen after the first angel, and that's going to happen after the seven seals, right? There's a sequence to the events in Revelation, so we can understand that certain things have to happen before certain other things will happen. Additionally, from the very beginning of Revelation, we're told that all this is going to take place after these things, right? This is in the future. So there's actually a great deal we can know about the end times from what's written in Revelation. Will we know every single little thing? No, because there's not enough evidence there, just like we don't know exactly what the star is. But we know a lot. So this is what I mean when um, we won't know all the details. We still will know a lot, and God is very effective in communicating those things to us. Information is very clear and very easy to understand, I would argue, in Revelation. It's unfortunate that controversies around books like Genesis and Revelation make us hesitant to try to interpret them, or they make us second guess every other word in the passages. God, God does give us the details he wanted to give us clearly, and they were meant to encourage and to warn us. That's the purpose uh, one of his purposes in the book of Revelation. So let's not, be dis let's not be swayed or dismayed by thinking relatively, relativistically about certain books of the Bible or about the Bible at all. We don't want to dismiss sections as being too hard or too unclear because doing so is just a deadly pitfall that cuts us off from the goodness of God's word and puts us on a slippery slope questioning the whole Bible. So this is one type of relativism, one brand, if you will. So let's pause for a moment. What are some questions or some comments you have on this topic? Biblical meaning is unknowable, or certain parts of the Bible, you just can't figure out what it means. Yeah, Shane. Non-Christians that are talking about Christians, and they'll take the non 
Yeah, I think we're, you're, you're totally right, Shay. We're too quick to, to doubt the integrity of the Bible. And we're like, oh, look what this really learned guy in the world says. And <clears throat> not to dismiss all this people as being totally stupid, but you're right. They don't have the spirit of God. They're not thinking according to wisdom. And if we don't do our own diligent study of the word, we're going to be swayed by that. Or we could be tempted to be swayed by that. I'm, I'm amazed, actually, just reading a little bit lately in Colossians, how much the Bible is telling you to beware, especially in the New Testament, telling you to beware of the persuasive arguments of false teachers. It's like, don't be, dis- don't be led astray by these people who are using philosophy. Don't be led astray by these people who come up with these ideas in their own minds and say, this is what God says. So this is something that we really ought to take to heart. You're totally right, Shane. Other comments or questions? All right, well then, let's move on. So we've looked at one type of relativism. Let's look at another. Relativism not only comes in the flavor of questioning the truthfulness or the clarity of God's word, but relativism also allows us to believe that the meaning of God's word can change, that it can mean different things at different times or different things to different cultures. This, too, is a grave danger and will totally wreck our understanding of God's biblical truth. Now, I'm not talking, let me just start out by saying, I'm not talking about added understanding given to Old Testament passages by the New Testament authors. They had God's mystery revealed fully when he inaugurated the New Covenant, so they added to, but did not change, our understanding of certain Old Testament passages and concepts. We've talked about this before. This is why, and additionally, we're told that the Old Covenant has been uh, replaced with a new covenant so that we obey the law of Christ rather than the Old Testament uh, law. And if you want to learn more about this or talk more about this, just come see me afterwards. We've dealt with this before. Not talking about this kind of uh, addition based on God's mystery being fully revealed. What I am talking about, though, is the kind of interpretation that takes Old Testament and New Testament verses and makes them mean something different today than they did in either the Old Testament or New Testament. What am I talking about? Well, let's look to the feminists for one example. Some feminist-leaning Christian leaders have offered a relativistic interpretation of Paul's words about women in uh, two of these main passages here. Let's actually look at both. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 38. First Corinthians 14, 34 to 38, and then we'll also look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. Let's start in 1 Corinthians, though. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 34. Here's what it says. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, 
but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he'll not be recognized. <clears throat> okay. Before we move on, this does not mean that all of you women ought not to utter a word at all into the church building. What is the context of this chapter? Prophecy and speaking in tongues. Or we could say teaching in the church. So he's talking about women teaching in the church. He says they are to be silent when it comes to that. This is even more explicit in Paul's letter to Timothy. So now turn over to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. First Timothy 2, 11. Oh, I'm in the second letter. Aha. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Again, it's valuable to think about context. As we've noted before, the book of 1 Timothy is like an instruction manual about what? Yeah, how to behave in the church of God. Just one chapter later in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul writes, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What's that? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. So this is talking about women in the church not exercising a teaching authority, a spiritual authority over men. This isn't because women are inferior. This is just the way that God assigned the roles. So what about those who support women preachers, women elders? How do they deal with these passages? Well, you can guess it's going to be some kind of distortion, and they're going to use relativism to justify it. They'll say something like this. Well, that was only a specific situation in that one church. It doesn't apply to other ones. Or they say, this was due to cultural views of men and women at the time. Or they'll say, Paul simply had something against women. He was prejudiced. So we don't have to listen to what he says there. They essentially are arguing that the meaning of these passages has changed. And by doing so, they excuse their present practices. You may say, but wait, aren't some things in the Bible merely cultural to the time period? Isn't it valid to use this argument without falling into the error of relativism? It is true. Even in the New Testament, we do see some specific issues that were unique to the time period and location, issues that aren't in our society today. Uh, as we noted a few weeks ago, we don't deal with eating food sacrificed to idols today, or at least not usually. Nor are we practicing the gift of miraculous language that is tongues in the church, or at least we shouldn't be. Those issues were unique in their time and place in the scriptures. However, even with those unique situations, God was displaying principles that transcend 
those situations. They go beyond the culture, the time period, or the location. We might not have to deal with food sacrifice to idols, but we do deal with other issues that similarly raise questions about conscience or about causing other believers to stumble. We might not speak in tongues today, but there are important principles in Paul's exhortation to the church regarding tongues. Things like the false use or the misuse of spiritual gifts. Principles about what kind of spiritual gifts we ought to seek ourselves. Principles about order in the church service. And so on. So saying that something is merely cultural usually is not accurate. Our application of scripture might look different than that of the early church or of the passage we're reading about, but the principles don't change. The standards don't change for what Christ called his followers to live by. Therefore, the cry of those who say that prohibitions against female church leadership is merely cultural find themselves to be going against the clear principles in the Bible. After all, if we're still in our 1 Timothy passage, how much clearer can Paul make God's principles regarding um, gender roles in the church? Because where does Paul go to justify or as an example of the principles of roles in spiritual leadership. He goes to Genesis, back to the beginning of the Bible. He goes back to Adam and Eve. That's pretty fundamental. He says, there was the principle there of Adam's spiritual headship, and it's still here in the church right now, and it's, of course, still here in America's 21st century. We cannot use culture as an excuse to be relative. I saw a hand somewhere. Is there a question or a comment? Okay. One final example to drive this point home. <clears throat> that, that is the idea that principles displayed in each section of God's word are timeless. There are those today that would suggest that morality is relative, especially standards of sexual conduct. Here's a sample argument. At one time, it was scandalous if a girl's shoulders were exposed, or if you could see her ankles. In earlier times or in different cultures, this type of exposure would have been deemed immoral. But standards have changed, and we would not consider those things immoral anymore. In the same way, the person would continue to argue. When we hear Paul say immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, which is what he says in Ephesians, we have to realize that the definition of immorality has changed. To live with another person is not considered immoral today. It may have been at Paul's time, but he was in a different culture. Or it's okay to sleep with someone you're not married to as, as long as you get married to that person. Or as long as you're not sleeping with someone else at the same time, because that would be adultery. This, again, is just relativism using culture as a convenient justification. Why can't this explanation be valid? Why can't someone use this justification? Yeah, Eric. Yeah, you're right. This is also going to lead us down a slippery slope. We can begin to question everything else if we can question one part. There's something else, though. Why isn't this explanation valid?
Hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what we're looking at, right? When I talk about the principles of God don't change, this is essentially what they're doing. They're changing that principle. The principle always was, as you were saying, um, when it comes to immorality, that means any sexual activity outside of marriage. That covers a lot of things. It covered a lot of things then, and it covers a lot of things now. Any sexual activity outside of marriage, that's immorality. And we can't use perceptions of immorality to justify changing that principle. The principle itself is not up for change. <clears throat> um, it is true, perceptions of morality and immorality change. And that has a strong influence on what is deemed modest or immodest by our cultures. But the definition of immorality itself doesn't change. <clears throat> so we don't want to alter the principles of the word. And we don't want to use the culture's view of morality to, um, to justify changing the principles of scripture. I think it was, those have pointed out, MacArthur and others, that the church often looks to cues from the world as to what is right and wrong. It might not be quite as bad as the world, but our definitions of morality and righteous behavior do seem to be altered a little bit as the societies are altered. But this is not biblical, and this is extremely dangerous. So this is a kind of relativism that says you, or says the Bible's meaning can change due to culture. Finally, there's one other kind of relativism I want to bring to your attention, and that is the belief that the meaning of the Bible can change not due to culture, but due to different people. Depending on who you are, the meaning of the Bible might be different. <clears throat> In this kind of relativism, we encounter the dreadfully misguided Bible study question, which says, what does this passage mean to you? <clears throat> As MacArthur is fond of saying, it doesn't matter what it means to you, or me, or anyone else. What does matter? Yeah, what did it mean to God? And um, synonymously, what did it mean to the original audience? Hopefully you've come to see by now that a passage can have multiple and even endless applications, but only one true interpretation, only one true meaning. To be fair, the phrase, what does it mean to you, and its similar phrases like, what do you get out of this passage, is perhaps used more as an appeal to share some observation or insight on the passage rather than a validation of multiple interpretations. <clears throat> Still, this pseudo-mystical notion that, or that exists in some Christian circles that God can say something personally relevant to you with an out-of-context scripture persists. The thinking goes, don't have time to read a full section of scripture? That's okay. Just flip to any page of the Bible and hear God's specific message to you. Just flip and point. <clears throat> Let's say someone does this with 1 Timothy 3.1. Go ahead and turn there. Let's see what God's specific message would be. <clears throat> oh, actually, we're still in Timothy. Nice. That's not far away. 1 Timothy 3.1. person is trying to find God's message to him, and here's what it says. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If you're reading this as God's message to you, you're not asking, what did this statement mean to the original audience? But what question are you asking? Yeah, Eric. Exactly. Why would God direct me to this passage? Maybe it means I'm supposed to be an elder. 
better go tell the pastor. Or maybe, maybe there's somebody in my life I need to encourage to be an elder. Whatever it is, because of this method of thinking, or this, this way of thinking, you believe that God is trying to tell you specifically something that has to do with being an elder. And your guide to figuring that out is not the scripture's context, but what? How will you figure out whether you're supposed to be the elder or someone else is? Yeah, it's going to come down to your own thinking or maybe your view of circumstances. You say, well, I, I'm not in a position to be an elder, but that guy is, so this must be about him. Again, your interpretation is not based on the Bible and its context. Now, does God communicate personally relevant information to us today? Things that you and I specifically need to hear. Does he do that? He does. How? Through the scripture in context. Yeah, and of course, by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the amazing things about the Bible. Is that you, when you read, you're going to hear something specifically relevant to you. And not randomly, or in a way that's out of context, but in context. Because the principles that the people in the Bible needed to understand are the same principles that you and I need to understand. So you will, and I will have the experience, you probably have already felt this experience, of saying like, wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Or maybe when the pastor is preaching or when somebody's preaching, you say, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I've been wondering about that for so long. Was it that <clears throat> God finally decided to speak to you? No, he always is doing that through his contextual scripture. That's the amazing thing. Things that are written to other people are actually written to us at the same time, personally, but not randomly. We don't treat the Bible like a Ouija board, nor do we look to some voice from within, which we cannot verify if it's really from God or not. We read God's word in context as it was meant to be read, and God speaks to us. Let's pause here again. What are some of your other questions or comments based on these things? Yes, Dwayne. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah.
Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great insight, Dwayne. Thanks for sharing that. The the strange fire tongues, as they just talk talk about tongues, healing, and um, prophecy, they have to redefine them. They have to redefine what all those words mean, and then say that they're the same. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, definitely go listen to the. Um, the discussions in the Strange Fire Conference, I found them to be really profitable. And you also see how they try and look for a biblical example of a true prophet who was actually wrong. And they point to one guy in the New Testament, but it's, again, it's a distortion of the passage. So that's really good, Dwayne. Any other comments or questions? Well, let's close with this. <clears throat> We've seen these three flavors of relativism. That is, that the, word of, the meaning of the word of God is not knowable, or the meaning can change based on culture, or the meaning can change based on people. But how do we guard against them? How do we guard against these different brands of relativism? They're all dangerous. They're all poisonous to our interpretation and deadly to our application. How do we guard against them? Well, actually, Throughout the presentation, I've been mentioning different things that we need to remember, but I'll sum them up for you here. What are the things that we need to remember? Well, first, we need to believe in the Bible's claims to perspicuity. The Bible says that it makes wise the simple. Believe that. It says in these different sections that it was made to profit those who read them, that it was to be understood, even if it was a little bit difficult. Believe that. Believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. Secondly, be very careful with labeling anything in the Bible as merely cultural. Recognize that God's principles always go beyond their specific times, locations, and cultures. And then finally, acknowledge that God's personal messages to you always come through his Bible in context. Do not look for some other kind of messaging. It's worth noting that many relativistic interpreters would cry foul to all this and say, I'm not so proud as to think that I know what the Bible means. But this statement is completely misguided and actually has a certain kind of pride to it. In other words, I'm too humble to think I know what God said. It's not prideful to believe what God said, that we can understand his word. He said that we'd be able to. That's only taking God, as his, God at his word. However, pride is another huge stumbling block when it comes to biblical interpretation. And we'll talk about that next week, along with some of the most commonly misinterpreted verses in the Bible. That'll be our last session in this series. Don't miss it. Hope to see you guys next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the the word. We thank you for the word and how it is timeless, that your principles of your your own character and uh, what is righteous, they don't change. We can take great stock in that. We can take great hope in that. Lord, help us to be on guard against what seems so smart, what seems so scholarly, what seems so intellectual when it comes to relativism. But God, I pray that we would not be deceived by it and that we would take your Bible at its word. 
And Lord, that you would help us to work through those difficult sections, recognizing, God, that you have rich instruction there, purposefully designed in its complexity to, to communicate something so valuable. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church and the people here, Lord, who love your word. I pray, Lord, that you would not let us deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't need this Bible, that we don't need to read it all the time. God, I pray that each person will be doing that. I pray this in your name. Amen.